Amen. Thank you, Ashley and Suemi and Lydia. Some of you are aware that uh, this is Ashley's last Sunday in some ways uh, with our church. So this isn't the last time she'll be in front of us. She'll be in front of us this coming Saturday uh, for her wedding to Andrew. But thank you, Ashley, for serving in our church in so many ways and for leading us even this morning and thinking about God's compassion for us. Let's pray now. I invite you to bow your head and close your eyes and and pray along with me as I lead us in prayer. God, we are so grateful for your compassion. As an earthly father has compassion for his children, so you as the perfect heavenly father have shown your compassion for us through your son Jesus. So we pray that we would find ultimate rest in Jesus. Before we open our eyes, I'd encourage you to keep your eyes closed. And already in our service, we've heard the gospel. We've sung of the one gospel. We've heard this invitation through song to come to Jesus. And I'm going to give us a moment here to do that. Maybe it's the first time for you. Maybe you've never come to God through Jesus. This would be a great time to turn from yourself and by faith turn to Jesus alone. If you have done this for the first time today, or maybe you're wondering more about what that means, then I'll be down front after our service. There'll be other elders and and wives in the back, and we would love to talk with you more about how you can come to Jesus through the one gospel of Christ. Father, thank you for this gospel. We pray this all because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. Let's open our Bibles again to Romans chapter 14. As Pastor Ross mentioned, I'll be speaking this morning, and then in two weeks from today, uh, he'll be down preaching for our sister church down in the Detroit area in two weeks. And so I'm excited to begin today kind of a two-part series, two-part sermon from Romans chapters 14 and 15. Our family has been part of this church, our church now, for, for eight years And though I don't know everything about every member of our church, I have learned this in eight years. We have a lot of differences. A lot. We have, we have some, some disagreements with one another. Maybe you have felt this. Maybe you've experienced this. As you talk and interact with, with others in our church, or perhaps you interact with them online, you notice that there are things that we, we differ on, we disagree on. We have different understandings of, of what is appropriate to wear and when it's appropriate to wear that. We have different understandings of what types of entertainment are are appropriate for us. We have different understandings of how much technology we should use in our homes. We have different understandings. We have disagreements on on how to school our children, how to educate them. We have disagreements on what we should do with different holidays. Should we participate in things like, like Halloween or even Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy? We have differences on what kind of musical style is appropriate for corporate worship. We have differences on whether or not a Christian should take on debt. We have different understandings of, of the physical body, of whether or not it should be pierced, and if so, how often, and if so, where. We have differences on whether or not it should be inked, and if so, how often, and if so, where. 
We have differences on whether or not a physical body should be overweight and if that's right or wrong. We have differences on whether or not we should use products that are fair trade certified or homeopathic medicines or or which vaccines we might take or give to our children. We have differences on all kinds of things. We have disagreements on whether or not we should buy from certain companies that actively support wicked lifestyles. Now, we gather on Sunday mornings not to focus on those, but to focus on what unites us, the the better, greater things we have in common, the one gospel that we've sung about. And yet, what do we do with these differences? What do we do with these disagreements? About two and a half years ago, I I taught through a a 10-week series on the conscience and what the Bible says about our conscience And I used primarily this resource, a book written by J.D. Crowley and Andy Nacelli, titled Conscience. And much of what I say today will be uh, in gratitude to these two authors and to this book, although there, there are other resources I've used as well. The good news is that God has given us instructions about what to do with those differences. Aren't you thankful that the Bible answers the most important questions? And Romans 14 is our, our passage, our, our text for what we do with differences. So you're in Romans 14, and, and we've already heard it, heard it read. We've read it together. If you're taking notes this morning, we'll see from this passage three commands and five reasons. Three commands and five reasons. But first, let's remember the context of Romans 14. So God is inspiring the Apostle Paul to write this letter to the church at Rome or the church of Rome. Here are Christians in that city. And he's spent, the Apostle Paul has spent 11 chapters worth just giving them gospel doctrine. Then in chapter 12, there's this turn to then gospel living. And gospel living looks like love for others and serving one another by submitting to one another. So chapter 12 and chapter 13, we have different types of submission, what love looks like. And then we get to chapter 14. And God tells Paul to tell God's church, that's us, some specific instructions about how we should relate with one another in regard to our differences, our disagreements. These instructions protect the unity of the church and They are tangible expressions of love. So if the gospel has saved you, then the gospel now calls you, calls us to protect the unity in these ways and to show love in these ways. Let's dive right into the first command. The first command is found in verse 1, and it's this. Welcome Christians who disagree with you. Welcome Christians who who disagree with you. Verse 1 says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. This means much more than having a welcome center in your church lobby or having even a greeting team or greeters or ushers to, to welcome people. No, this is talking about within the church membership. And the welcome here literally means to open up your fellowship and your heart to that person. To accept that person into your fellowship and into your heart. And then, because I believe God knows human nature, he says, now, you might be tempted to welcome that person in order to then talk about your disagreements and fight about those. But verse 1 says, don't welcome this person to quarrel over these opinions. 
don't invite them in and, and welcome them as members and then talk about all the ways in which you disagree and try to convince them and try to argue with them about your way is best and their way is worst. God says, no, don't do that. Don't do that. But isn't that our temptation? Right? To, to notice how, how they're different, how they live different, act different, but maybe even think differently, and then, and then to try to convince them that, that we're right and, and that they're wrong. We all fall into this trap, right? I'm not suggesting you do this, but if you have a membership directory of our church, you could go through and pretty much for each person, you could probably list out at least one way in which that person thinks differently than you or, or acts differently than you. Again, that's not a helpful exercise to do, but we have to admit that that's, that's the reality. That's, that's true. And if you can't think of one way in which you disagree, it's probably just because you don't know that person well enough. Now, this passage is about welcoming people who disagree with us. It's important to pause and say, okay, what do they disagree about? Well, here, the disagreement is clearly about non-essentials. What are non-essentials? The Bible teaches us that there are some teachings of the Bible that are more important than other teachings of the Bible. I'll say that again. The Bible teaches us that there are some teachings of the Bible that are more important than other teachings of the Bible. About 15 minutes ago, we all read two verses. And the verses began this way. I delivered to you as of first importance. God didn't say it's the only important thing. He said it's of first importance. And then we together said the gospel. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. When Jesus was on earth teaching, he taught about different sins that received greater punishment than others. In fact, he confronted a group of people who, who were focused on what Jesus said were, were the lesser laws and they were ignoring the weightier matters the more important matters so there are things that we believe that are what we would call first level doctrines or absolutes and this little diagram is going to be familiar to, to some of you because i went through this again a couple of years ago so there are some beliefs that are absolutes in order to really be a christian and if you're a member of this church you have agreed that you believe these things. That's not what this passage is about. This passage is not about first level absolutes. There are also some beliefs that, that we hold that would be considered second level or convictions. So these are things that, that we understand from the Bible to be clear teachings that we as a church, we believe these are convictions of our church. These beliefs often will, will just guide church partnerships and church memberships so we'll have differences with people on on even things like like baptism and church polity and yet that's not first level it's really second level convictions and we believe those things but then there's another level of of beliefs and that's what we might call opinions and that's what's really at play here in romans chapter 14 these are areas of of understanding of belief of of thought that members of the same church can disagree on, often will disagree on, and yet it should not, it must not divide the church. It must not create disunity within the fellowship. 
So these third level issues are not matters of the Bible that affect the gospel or they're not matters where the Bible is clear. So the Bible is clear that that certain sins are clearly sins. Lying, stealing, coveting, adultery, homosexuality, greed, gluttony. We could go on and on. The Bible is clear these are sins. That's not what we're talking about here in Romans chapter 14. Romans 14 is about this this category of second or, or especially third level beliefs. And God calls us to welcome Christians who disagree with us. It's so easy for a church and a church member to to lose sight of the most important things that unite us and to think so much about the things that that we disagree with others on. Because we rightly know that we remember that we are united that we believe the most important things. And so our attention can turn to the things that that we don't hold in common. So how how should Christians live on on Sunday after the worship service is over? There are differences of opinion. There are disagreements even within our church family on what is appropriate. Is it appropriate to to shop on a Sunday or to to buy food from a restaurant on a Sunday? Is it appropriate to, to play on a Sunday or to watch others play on a Sunday? And is it appropriate to do yard work? Or you can go on and on and on and on and on. But lift your eyes, friends. Lift your eyes from the things that, that we differ on to the actual command here in Romans 14. And the command is to welcome. The command is to welcome. What are the specific issues that play in this church? Well, they're a little bit different than the things that might be at play here, here in our assembly. And yet, you'll see there are some common things as well. Look again now at verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything. While the weak person eats only vegetables. Jump down to verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another. While another esteems all days alike. So the issues here were special diets and special days. Special diets and special days. And you had a strong conscience Christian. A Christian who had a strong conscience in a certain area. And that Christian believes he may eat anything. And that Christian esteems all days alike. And you have Christians who have a weak conscience in those areas. And those weak conscience Christians eat only vegetables and esteem one day is better than another. What's going on here? Well, you probably in that church have some Christians with a strong conscience who say, listen, all food and every day, like it's all the same. It's all acceptable. It's all clean. Why? Because they have heard, apparently, what Jesus said in Mark 2 and in Mark 7. Where Jesus said, no, no, the the man was not made for Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. And Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus said, all foods are clean. So the strong conscience Christian says, Jesus has said this. While the weak conscience Christian, they know what Exodus 35 says in Leviticus 11 about diets and days and They probably were brought up in a very religious home with some pretty strict teaching. And that Christian says, I I just, I just can't eat that. And I I just can't act that way on, on the Sabbath. 
These, these significant disagreements would impact daily life within the church, wouldn't they? Think of this. The church gathers to eat. And this person brings meat. And this person doesn't eat it. That's pretty noticeable. This person invites this other family over to their house on, on the last day of the week. And this family says, no, we can't come. Or they come and they say, no, we can't do that. Pretty significant disagreements that would impact church life. And we have disagreements that, that are pretty noticeable among, among our church family, right? Whether it's what we wear or what we watch or listen to or how we educate our children or how someone spends their money, spends their time, spends their influence. And the fact is that we will disagree with other Christians about many non-essential issues. And Romans 14 was given to us by God to teach us how to live with those differences. Welcome. Welcome them. Open up your fellowship and your heart. Our temptation is to keep them at arm's length, right? Well, we'll acknowledge they're a Christian. We'll be thankful they're in our assembly. But we're not going to get too close to them. We're not actually going to like really let them get close to us. We're not going to open up our, our heart or, or our home to that person. Because of the ways in which, which we disagree. The second command follows the first command. It's really kind of the, the negative command to this first positive command. And that is don't despise. Don't despise. Look at verse 3. Let not the one who eats. That would be the strong conscience Christian. Despise the one who abstains. God's given every person a conscience. It's a beautiful gift from God. The conscience is his gift for your good and for your joy. And you and I are, are, are supposed to follow our conscience when we believe that it's operating correctly. The conscience works a lot like a, like a smoke detector. And so it'll fire, it'll, it'll send off an alarm telling us, don't or stop. And when it does, and when we believe it's operating correctly, we are to obey it. We must obey the conscience. It's a good gift from our God. But the conscience isn't God. God is the Lord over the conscience, over your conscience and my conscience. And so, in addition to obeying it, we are to calibrate it. Calibrate it according to God's word. That's the ultimate standard, right? So you have, this happened to you, I'm sure. You get in your vehicle and you turn it on and ding, ding, the check engine light comes on. And 95% of us go, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. I got places to go. I got things to do. It'll be fine. Maybe we might stop and get it checked out. But we just assume that it's not calibrated correctly or that what it's telling us isn't that important. That's not the conscience. Conscience is extremely important. Now, it can fire contrary to God's word, and that's when we must enter into God's word and say, okay, how does my thinking, my conscience need to change on this matter? What's happening here in, in this passage is you have these strong conscience Christians who are free to eat, and their temptation is is to despise, to ridicule, to look down on, to feel superior over the ones who don't. So they go through the church potluck line, right? 
and they see that person, and they're pretty sure that person's not going to take that meat. And sure enough, the person doesn't take the meat. And they think, ha, I can eat it. You can't. Wish you were free like me. And that is a sin. God says, don't despise, don't look down on, don't ridicule, don't have a feeling of superiority over, over those whose conscience doesn't allow them to, to live that way. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Instead, God says, welcome, welcome him. Open up your heart, open up yourself in love. That's the temptation for the Christian who, who is strong in a particular area. Now, for the Christian who, who is weak in a particular area, and when I say weak, we mean conscience, what's, what's the temptation there? Keep reading verse 3. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. The temptation is, is to judge. And God says, don't judge. Don't judge. So you go through the line and the the Christian doesn't take the meat, but he sees his brother or sister take the meat, and he judges. He says, ha, you're not as spiritual as I am. I understand the Torah, the Pentateuch, and, and you clearly don't. I mean, I've lived this way my whole life. I've been taught to, to not participate, and, and you are? I'm going to judge you. I'm going to hold myself over you as the judge. Now, we would expect, as God is addressing this church through the Apostle Paul, we'd expect God to just, just lay down the verdict, right? Who's right? Who's wrong? Meat, no meat, special days, no special days. God, just tell us. Isn't that our human nature, right? You see, you see squabbles or you're involved in a squabble, and you just want to know, okay, like, just tell, like, who's right, who's wrong? Let's figure this out. I want to know where I should line up. Am I on this side? Or am I on this side? Like, just, just tell me. Just tell me. But God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that with these areas of non-essentials. What does God do? He says to welcome them. To welcome them. Now, he says more, and we'll see that both later on today as well as in two weeks. But notice the answer is not to, to tell those who... who can't eat or feel condemned if they eat. He doesn't tell them, listen, all foods are clean. The truth is that all foods are clean. Jesus said it. And Paul's going to remind the church of that later on in this passage. The truth is all foods are clean, but, Jesus, but God doesn't say, he doesn't say, therefore you must eat. And God doesn't tell these strong conscience Christians, hey, listen, you, you must not eat. He could do that. In fact, in, in Corinthians, he does that for a different Scenario, but instead, God says, end of verse 5, he says, be fully convinced. Be fully convinced. What God says here is not that doctrine doesn't matter. That, that's not what God says. In fact, he just spent 11 chapters worth teaching gospel doctrine. So doctrine matters. God also is not saying that your opinions and convictions don't matter. That's not what God is saying. He says, end of verse 5, to be fully convinced. God also is not saying to, to don't change. In fact, as we keep reading in Romans 14, we'll see that God, through Paul, t tells the truth and, and tells what is true. So if those are things God is not saying, what is God saying? 
God is saying, and he says it clearly in verse 19 that we didn't read earlier, but we will read now. God is saying that peace and mutual edification within the church are more important than our deeply held convictions and opinions on non-essential issues. Look at verse 19 of Romans 14. Look at verse 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. God says, that's more important. That's more important. Yes, God knows whether or not something is allowable. He, he clearly knows. He gives us plenty of sins that are clearly not allowable. And he gives direction on things like eating and special days. But on those non-essential matters, not of sin, but those non-essential issues, peace and mutual upbuilding, mutual edification are more important. Now, I told you earlier there, there are three commands in this passage and, and five reasons. And the force of the commands really is found in the five reasons. So the first reason, why? Why would we do this? Why would we welcome Christians who disagree with us? End of verse 3. Look at the end of verse 3. For, for God is welcomed. We welcome because God welcomed them. God opened up his family, his heart to that fellow Christian. And God welcomed that person into his family. He adopted them. Remember, these are not issues of of heresy. These are non-essentials. And God welcomed that person. Now, there's a little note of application for, for some of us here, okay? Not every issue you disagree with someone else on is heresy. So it's wrong for us to label other Christians false teachers or heretics because they disagree with us on on non-essential opinions. God has welcomed them. God welcomed them. Do you really think that you're more holy than God? So God welcomed them and you're not going to? Welcome them because, because God has welcomed them. We were all once strangers chasing selfish dreams. But beneath the cross of Jesus... His family that he's in charge of, it's our own. So how could I now dishonor the ones that God has loved? God welcomed them. So we are to welcome them. What's the second reason we are to welcome Christians who disagree with us? It's because God is their master. God is their master. Look at verse 4. Who are you? I said it in a way that kind of Brings a connotation to it, right? In the tone of my voice. Who are you? Who are you? But who are you? Who am I? Keep reading verse 4. To pass judgment on the servant of another. Have you ever been in a situation where you're, you're doing your job just like your boss tells you to do it and someone else tries to tell you how to do your job? Who's been in this situation, right? And if, if the person's giving you advice that is contrary to what your boss has said... You're tempted to think, who are you? Who are you to tell me what to do? Listen, I report to, to my boss, and you don't. So I'm going to do what my boss tells me. Or our company has policies, has practices, and I have to follow this procedure and do this thing. You might be trying to tell me how to do my job, but, but listen, I, I have a master, and it's, it's not you. So verse 4, 
keep reading, it's before his own master that he stands or falls. Who's the master over that Christian that you disagree with? God. God is the master. And, and do you really think that God needs your help? Do I really think that God needs my help to, to grow that Christian? Like, God, you saved the Christian, but really I need to be the one to sanctify the Christian. It's before his own master that he stands or falls. And, keep reading, he will be upheld because the Lord is able to make him stand. You see, sometimes when we disagree with other Christians and when we close up our heart against them, it's because our view of God is too small. We judge other Christians who disagree with us because we don't think God is able to make them stand. We think God can't be their master. He's too busy or he's, he's not powerful enough. I need to be their master. We think God is weak. He needs our help. When we judge other Christians in this way, we have an anemic understanding of God's power and his love for his children. So reason one, God's welcomed them. Reason two, God's their master. Reason three, this will blow your mind. They're actually honoring God. And that very thing that is the opposite of the way you live, they're able to honor God. Look at verse 6. The one who observes the day, this would be in this setting of the Roman church, this would be the weak conscience Christian. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. Remember that phrase. It's going to come up again. The one who eats, that would be the strong conscience Christian, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, back over here to the weak conscience Christian, abstains in honor of the Lord. And gives thanks to God. Here's something incredible. Okay, look here. Something incredible. So here's, here's a church family. And they're going through the potluck line. And one's doing this and one's doing this. And they're opposite. And God is honored in both. That's hard for us to believe. It's not like, well, this person does this. And this person does maybe just a shade. Like, well, they eat, but they eat less. No, they're opposite actions. Completely, completely opposite actions. One observes the day, one doesn't observe the day. And in both, God is honored. Isn't our natural human assumption to just assume like, I mean, okay, that person who disagrees with me and we live very opposite in this one area. Well, okay. I mean, yeah, they're God's child. Okay. But, but God's really pleased with what I'm doing. He's not very pleased with what they're doing. And in non-essential issues, Romans 14, verse 6 says, we ought to assume that they are honoring God. Well, we naturally assume, don't we? But we don't assume that. <laughs> we assume the opposite of that. And the assumption here in verse 6 is that that, that fellow Christian in that non-essential issue is honoring the Lord by doing something that's the opposite of what, what I'm doing. That'll blow your mind. Reason number four, reason number four, we are to live for Christ, who is Lord of all. Christian brother, Christian sister, you are not your own. I am not my own. So look at verse 7. None of us lives to himself. 
I'm not to live for my third-level conscience-fueled opinion. You're not to live for your third-level conscience-fueled opinion. We are to live for the Lord. We are to live for Christ. That's what we are to live for. We are called to live for Jesus. He is Lord of all. Here's a question that um, I think most of you will know the answer to, right? Why did Jesus come to earth, die, and then come back to life? Why? To save us. To save us, right? Are there more ways to answer that question? Look at verse 9 of our passage. Verse 9. For to this end, or you might say for this purpose, Christ died and lived again. That's the gospel. That he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. One of the reasons that Christ came to earth, lived a perfect life that we could never live, died in our place, and then came back to life, rose from the dead. One of the reasons, in addition to saving us from our sins, praise God, is that he might be our Lord and the Lord of every other Christian. So why are we to welcome Christians who disagree with us? Because we are to live for Christ, who, who is our Lord, and he's their Lord. So not only is our understanding of God sometimes too small, our understanding of the gospel is too small. Christ is Lord. I must stop trying to live as if I'm Lord, or as if my opinions are Lord. No, he's Lord, and he's powerful enough to be my Lord, and Lord of all of his children. The final reason, the final reason we're supposed to welcome those who, those Christians who disagree with us, is that God will judge. God will judge me and you as well as them. So the passage ends, verse 10. Again, the question, convicting question. Why do you judge? Why do you pass judgment? Look at verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you... Why do you despise your brother? Here God, through Paul, looks at both of these groups of Christians, addresses both of them, and says, you, you who are tempted to judge because your conscience doesn't allow you to do that thing, why do you judge? And you, whose conscience is stronger and allows you to do that thing, you, why do you despise? The answer isn't one way is right or wrong, necessarily, in this issue. The answer is, verse 10, We'll all stand before God. Strong conscience Christian, you'll stand before God. Weak conscience Christian, you'll stand before God. Then the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit, quotes from Isaiah. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then, verse 12. Each of us will give an account. And then prepositional phrases are really important. An account of himself. To God. So the Bible doesn't say, I'll give an account of you, and you'll give an account of me. The Bible says, I'll give an account of myself, and you'll give an account of yourself. And the Bible doesn't say, I'll give an account of, of myself to you, and you'll give an account of yourself to me. The Bible says, I'll give an account of myself to God, and you'll give an account of yourself to God. Three commands, 
five reasons. Now, I wonder for, for some of us here this morning, what kind of confession or repentance we, we ought to, to undertake over the next few minutes or hours or days. As I've been studying this this week, again, I realize ways in which, maybe not with my mouth, but in my thoughts, I both judged and I despised. And God moved me this week to, to confess ways in which I, I have thought of people, thought of Christians who disagree with me on non-essentials, and I've thought either thoughts of judgment or thoughts of ridicule or scorn. And God is calling you to come and confess. Through Jesus, your sin has been paid and can be paid. So come to him. Come to Jesus find ultimate rest in him. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we are so tempted to judge and despise. We, we're so quick to welcome those who are like us and to welcome those who we like. And Father, you've called us to welcome all those whom you have welcomed. So please help us to do this. Father, I pray as a church that, that we be quick to confess and quick to repent. I pray that we would search your word and calibrate our conscience and, and think the same way that you think on all issues. Father, thank you for your word that gives us clear direction and instruction. And we pray in light of this passage that we'd be a church who, who welcomes all those whom you have welcomed. Father, thank you for Jesus. We pray this all in his name. Amen.